John's Gospel, chapter 20 this evening. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And actually we let off in uh, chapter 19 uh, last time, and so we'll pick things up in chapter 19, uh, verse uh, 38. So we come now and we continue. We've been separated for a couple of weeks from our study in this passage. But here we have uh, the record of the three greatest events in human history, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, We stopped at verse uh, 37 in chapter uh, 19 uh, with the first of those three events, Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins. And now we turn to Uh, the final two of those three, his burial and then his uh, resurrection. And after this, we're told in verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, and so he came and took the body uh, of Jesus. Uh, We remember the last time that we were in chapter 19 looking at Jesus' crucifixion and looking at it it in um, the context also of of, uh, the fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures related to that, how John is at the scene of his crucifixion. Uh, There is in Isaiah chapter 53 uh, the description of the Messiah, uh, that he would uh, die for the sins of mankind, but not a single one of his bones would be broken, and uh, yet his body would be pierced. And how, uh, humanly speaking, it was against all odds as the uh, Roman soldiers came out to hasten the death of Jesus and the two thieves that were uh, crucified on either side of him because of the Jewish holy day, finding him already dead, they did not break his Uh, shin bones in order to hasten his death as they did then with the thieves. And so here he is not a single bone broken as Isaiah had declared 740 years before the Messiah ever came into human history. But why if Jesus was already dead, as the prophet had said, why would there be the necessity then for a Roman soldier to take a spear and bring it up under his ribcage and, uh, and, uh, and pierce his body in the way that he did. And yet both of those things happened just as Isaiah had said. And the, the fulfillment, I mean the wondrous fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies in not only Jesus' life but in his death and, and also in his burial, it continues uh, here into the passage we look at uh, this evening. And so John watches uh, Jesus' death upon the cross And yet he is doubtless in his own mind uh, uh, aware of the prophecy again in Isaiah chapter 53 uh, uh, verses 7 through 9 that declared that the Messiah would be, uh, he he would be crucified, Psalm 22, Um, he he would uh, die for the sins uh, of the world, but that he would also then after his death be buried in a rich man's tomb. Now usually when someone was uh, uh, executed by the Romans as a part of of their uh, judicial system, the bodies were simply taken down off of the crosses and they were thrown in a heap somewhere. 
uh, in a common kind of grave. And so uh, that was the, uh, typically what happened to someone who had been crucified or executed in that way. Uh, no one would make sure that they were carefully buried and no one would uh, assure that they were buried in a rich man's tomb. And yet, again, Isaiah said, and they made his grave, that is Messiah, with the wicked, but with the rich in his death. They had intended to bury him and cast his body where they threw all of the other crucified uh, people and, and the wicked. And yet, with that intention, uh, uh, despite that intention, uh, he would end up being, uh, his grave being the rich at his death. And so Isaiah declared that Messiah would die. He would die for the sins of mankind. He would be buried. That the original, again, original intent of those who had crucified him, uh, the intent would be to bury him with the wicked in the mass grave of criminals. But then, astonishingly, he would end up being buried uh, with the rich and, uh, and so there Jesus hangs on the cross as John watches him from a distance and he has to be wondering how in the world is all of that going to be <clears throat> uh, fulfilled? Uh, who is going to bury him? Uh, and no arrangements had been made prior on the part of the disciples. Jesus hadn't called them to do that related to his burial. All of the disciples are scattered in all directions. Only John remains of the disciples on the scene of Jesus' uh, crucifixion. None of them had the prominence as these fishermen and these obscure uh, uh, men from the north, from the Galilee, none of them had the prominence to be able to approach Pilate and secure uh, the body of Jesus for any kind of a burial, much less in a rich man's tomb. And yet, um, and the question being, would Pilate even allow him to be uh, buried at all? In ancient times, the humiliation of a condemned man deliberately would not end in his death. Roman law dictated that all honors uh, in death uh, would be lost to a person that, that died a, a capital, by the right of capital punishment and even the right of burial was to then be determined by magisterial decree. Only the governor would be able to decide uh, whether that uh, an exclusion to that body being thrown in in a, in a mass uh, grave. And so uh, uh, Tac uh, Tacticus was an uh, ancient uh, historian writing at the time of Caesar Tiberius. He wrote that people sentenced to death forfeited their property and were forbidden burial. And that was typically uh, the Roman way. They wanted to humiliate on the cross, make a lesson of that person's life to a watching public, and then even humiliate them in, uh, in, uh, in their death. And so even if the disciples uh, had the power to go before Pilate or that they could ever gain an audience with him, uh, and none of them really did. Uh, none of them also had the means to secure a, a place in which a, a rich man would be uh, buried. None of them were rich at all. They were, again, these kind of blue-collar people from 
uh, the northern region of, of Galilee. And so, uh, 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 hence, it, we're told here that uh, the intent was that they would make his grave with the wicked. And so, John watches the scene in the light of Isaiah's prophecy concerning the burial of Jesus. And once again, he had to look at that and think there is no way this can be fulfilled, this prophecy. They're going to throw him in a heap of bodies just like they do with anybody else. We haven't secured any tomb for him, uh, any grave site for him, let alone one for a rich man. And then out of nowhere, absolutely out of nowhere as we put ourselves on that scene, uh, two men appear on the scene, Joseph of Arimathea and a man by the name of Nicodemus. And even though the disciples had uh, no plans for taking care of this, God was going to take care of it from uh, another quarter. And so uh, Joseph of Arimathea is introduced to us there in verse uh, 38. He was from the city of uh, Arimathea. He, he made his, own, his home uh, almost certainly now in the city of, of Jerusalem. And uh, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And uh, he had been carving out, as we'll see in a moment, carving out a tomb for himself. Uh, Matthew's gospel tells us that he was a rich man. Uh, Mark's gospel tell us, tells us that he was a prominent council member. That is, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the 70 most powerful uh, religious leaders in all of Ju uh, Judaism and also in, in Israel. He was an older man because the tomb was his. So he's at least at an age where uh, a person starts to think about death and prepare for death. When your younger death seems like it's so far off and there's no need to prepare for it, he's at a place in life where he recognizes, I need to take care uh, of this. And so he begins uh, to, to do that. Now they typically, when a person would be buried in Israel, in the ancient world, they would simply be put in kind of a catacomb, or they would be put in, uh, into a cave, and then some kind of a rock be put across uh, the opening of that cave. There's all kinds of caves in Israel, uh, given kind of the, uh, the soil and, and, and what it, it's made up of. And so only the most wealthy individual could afford to have a tomb uh, chiseled out of solid rock then uh, to uh, have their body buried in. And if you wanted an ideal place, you wanted to be buried somewhere close to Jerusalem, then that's what you would have to do because all of their caves would have been long ago taken by other families and by other bodies. And so, uh, so uh, Joseph of Arimathea uh, 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 did. We're told in Mark's gospel that he was uh, also waiting for the kingdom of God, so he had a heart for God. And we're told uh, here that he had become a disciple of Jesus. So he had become a follower of Jesus, but he had become that uh, secretly. And so we're told here that on his own, he went to Pilate. He asked Pilate that he might be able to take the body uh, of Jesus. Uh, it, it, again, it's doubtful that any of the other 11 uh, 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 apostles could have ever gained an, uh, an a audience with Pilate at this point. 
uh, in uh, concerning things, much less uh, have him look upon them favorably to release the body to them. But because Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, then he probably was able to readily gain that audience with Pilate and then secure the release uh, of, of the body. And then joining him, we're told, is Nicodemus in verse 39. He brought spices. We're told uh, that Nicodemus was also, the Bible says, he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. You remember he had come to Jesus privately uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 3, way back when, when we were in there. And he had even, uh, later in John's Gospel, chapter 7, he had defended Jesus uh, publicly when Jesus was being falsely accused before uh, the Sanhedrin. And so he brought a hundred pounds of spices with which to prepare uh, Jesus' body for uh, burial. And so uh, together they came and uh, Nicodemus, who uh, again in verse 39, who at first came to Jesus by night, uh, John 3 also came bringing that a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about a hundred of about a hundred pounds. And then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one uh, had yet been laid. And so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb uh, was uh, nearby. And so here you have Nicodemus, you have Joseph of Arimathea uh, on the, the evening of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, secret disciples up to this point, but now they publicly identify with him. And I've heard, I've, I've heard lots of sermons uh, kind of condemning them for being secret disciples. Certainly none of us want to be secret disciples, but I think we don't want to overlook the fact that when all of the uh, disciples have fled off in all kinds of different directions for their own uh, safety, these two come out risking all of their wealth, all of their position, all of their everything to come and now identify with Jesus publicly and make sure that he is given a, a decent uh, burial. So this is the kind of, of love that they had uh, for him. They bound his body with strips of linen, we're told, and spices in preparation for the burial. The, the Jews did not uh, bury in the way that the Egyptians did. The Egyptians would uh, uh, gut a person, remove all of their vital organs and uh, all of their blood, and then they would mummify them or they would embalm them. Uh, the Jews uh, would, uh, uh, normally their process was just to wash the body, clean the body, cover it with a cloth, and then cover it with arom uh, 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 aromatic uh, spices. And uh, this hundred pounds being brought by Nicodemus is an indication of his heart for Jesus. I mean, very, very lavish in what he wants to meet out upon uh, the body of, uh, of, of Jesus here. And, and of course, in uh, burying him in this way, bringing uh, uh, the, the, the cloths and then bringing these spices to bury him, again, we see very clearly Jesus uh, was dead. The Roman soldiers knew he was dead. Joseph of, Ar of Arimathea, Nicodemus knew he was dead or they would have never buried him in the tomb. And the reason I mention that is because you have... 
in the face of all of these prophecies and in the face of the historical accounts concerning uh, Jesus' burial and his resurrection, you have people who say, well, he merely swooned on, on the cross. They put him down in the coolness of the tomb and he revived and went forward. As if these people in the ancient world were more stupid than us. And w- would you take someone that you loved as much as they loved Jesus to identify with Him in this way, to care for Him in this way, to express their love for Him in this way, and bury Him if He wasn't dead. I mean, the the hoops people will put themselves through in order to try and uh, discount Jesus' resurrection and the the clearness with which it's taught and with which uh, it occurred. We're told that he was laid there in a tomb that was in the garden. This uh, tomb was near the place of the crucifixion. Uh, And so you go to Israel today and you have Calvary, uh, uh, Gordon's Calvary there right outside of the, the walls of the city and literally within a stone's throw of the site of Jesus' crucifixion uh, is the tomb, the garden tomb here uh, that uh, matches exactly the tomb uh, that Jesus uh, was put in. One of the interesting things about that tomb is that um, it's a tomb that is very, very large as tombs went. Clearly, uh, Joseph of Arimathea had indicated it for to be a bearing, burial place not only for himself, uh, but for his wife, for his family. Lots of room for other bodies in there, and yet only uh, one place was chiseled out and prepared uh, finally for a body. And then um, after that, all other work in that tomb ceased. In other words, there was one person that was buried in that tomb. And then whoever this person was, and so significant was their birth and their resurrection, uh, that nobody ever touched that tomb again and used it uh, for uh, the burying of bodies. In fact, there's a cross that is within the, the rock place that, uh, the tomb, where the tomb is, and uh, an indication uh, that it became a, uh, a church for the early church, uh, the site of his, uh, his resurrection. And so uh, that matching so perfectly um, the, uh, the physical description of what uh, you'll typically see on a tour of Israel, and it's the highlight of any tour uh, of, of Israel. Now on the first day of the week, And uh, the Monday now, three days following Jesus' death and his burial, or the Sunday, first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw the stone had been uh, taken away from the tomb. And then she ran and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, which is John, whom Jesus loved. That's how he described himself in the gospel. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have uh, laid him. And so here you have Mary Magdalene. She was one of the uh, last ones to leave the site of Jesus' crucifixion three days uh, earlier, and, uh, and, and uh, she was 
uh, as Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel uh, declare, she was uh, there among the women who followed Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb to see where Jesus was buried. She knew where to go on that uh, on that resurrection Sunday, and she was a woman that uh, 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 loved Jesus greatly. She is the uh, absolute picture of personification of uh, he who has been forgiven much loves much. Uh, she, she is interesting and unique in that uh, when she came to know Jesus, he cast seven demons out of her. She grew up in a very small village on the Galilee uh, known as Magda. And there's a, a, a Magda exists today as, as a site on the Sea of Galilee. Now, I have never been uh, demon-possessed. Maybe one or two of us in the room have, so I don't know what that experience is. I can only try to imagine having my life waking up every morning and the nightmare continues. My life is not my own. I'm not able to live the life that I see everybody else living. My life is controlled by a demon. And not just one demon, but seven demons in her. And I don't know what kind of, of power struggles that occur between demons for who's going to control uh, the person they're possessing for the coming day. I don't know what any of that looks like, but that's what she dealt with on a daily basis. And one day she comes into contact with Jesus. Think about the hopelessness of that situation. Think about uh, the internal darkness of that. Uh, sometimes you might be watching something on television or you, you, know, you go to the movies or something and they got the previews and uh, now they're emphasizing this new exorcism, uh, uh, promoting this new exorcism movie, whatever it is, and, and all. And sometimes you look at this stuff and you just say, that's, that's so dark and that's just a movie. She's got, the, she's got seven movies playing inside of her for real in her life. And Jesus casts those demons out of her life. And her entire life changed. And she became a follower of Jesus, as you might imagine. And here, the love that she continued to have for Him, she's not going to the tomb expecting resurrection. She's going there to find a dead body. But he meant so much to her that even if, if she could just express love toward a dead body, the first chance after the Passover that she could, she was going to do that because of the power he had exercised in her life to deliver her uh, in, in that, that way. And I think it's one of the great privileges that we have as, as Christians to be able to uh, and, and the importance is um, to do it. But no matter what kind of problem anyone has going on in their life, no matter how great it is, no matter how beyond the help of man it is, to be able to say to somebody, Jesus will help you in this. He will deliver you. Of this, and he's the only one that can do that. 
And what a privilege it is to be able to walk through life. We hear so many things going on, so many crazy things happening within our culture, so much of it that has to be, it's so irrational that it has to be, have its foundation in the demonic realm. And then when the casualties of these belief systems and these ideas about the human body and all of this, and something's been made a mess, and then now people are going to say, what in the world do I do now in the light of what I've done? And to be able to say to anyone, you come to Jesus and He will help you. He will take you by the hand and move you from that into His will for your life. And and the privilege of being able to do that, whether those problems are as great as, as uh, uh, Mary Magdalene or something that is less, to make, let people know that um, no one is beyond the hope that is found in Christ. Nothing is too difficult for Him. And the key is, is because we have in our culture... Um, I'm not saying that there isn't something real and true called psychology um, that that matches the the part of it that matches Scripture. But everything, sins, everything have been uh, psychologized within our culture. And so there's a psychological reason given for it. And so we as Christians start to look at the problems, the immense problems that people find themselves in, and then we look at it purely as something that's been defined for us as psychological. It may be, but it may not be. It may be demonic. It may be a demonic lie that somebody is believing or acting out upon or the consequences now coming full to bear upon them, and to be able to say, there is hope for you in Christ. And to just say that, rather than just keeping our mouths closed while they go on, like Mary Magdalene, another day, another day, another day, seven demons, another day being all messed up like I am uh, by whatever lies or by whatever uh, uh, kind of problems that I have in my life, and to speak to people about the hope that is, is him, in Him. And so she comes, she comes early uh, in the morning, and uh, expressing her love in that way for him. She finds that the stone has been moved away. She didn't expect that. Her conclusion is that what has occurred is not a resurrection. That's not what she said. He's raised from the dead and ran to uh, Peter and John and told them about Jesus' resurrection. She assumed that a theft had taken, uh, uh, taken place. And so she ran in verse 2 to inform uh, John and and Peter of the disappearance of Jesus' body. And then uh, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, John, and were going to the tomb. And so they ran together. So they get this news, something has happened here related to Jesus. They run through the city of Jerusalem out to the place where the tomb was located, and uh, the other disciple outran Peter, that is John, it is his gospel, and uh, he came to the tomb first. Now, John was significantly younger uh, than all of the other disciples, so it's no surprise that he would outrun him. The fact that he did outrun him, it lays the foundation for what happens next. I don't, I don't, I, uh, one day I'll meet Peter, and, but I, I don't, um, I don't think he was a tap dancer. 
Uh, he, he th- I think of him as more uh, bearish, you know, so this lumbering guy making his way, and John says, I'm not going to wait till he gets there and uh, makes his way there. And John comes to the tomb, stooping down, and he looked into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and yet he did not uh, go in. And so here is John, different personalities in the body of Christ. John is uh, known as John the mystic. John's more cautious on a, a scene like this. And so he, uh, he is careful uh, when he comes on that kind of a scene to try and uh, take things slow and try to understand it. Simon Peter, completely different personality. He came and he, following him and then he burst right into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. And so here is Peter. He, what, he, um, what he lacks in speed, uh, he more than makes up for in terms of boldness and enthusiasm. So he just busts right in there. Um, there might be an explanation for Peter, uh, his excitement, and, uh, and, and the reason that he does this is that you remember just three days earlier, he had denied even knowing Jesus uh, three times. And so anything related to Jesus, his antennas uh, are up, and he's going to go and find out uh, what in the world has happened to, uh, uh, to Jesus. And here Peter sees the linen cloths, they're lying there, and uh, Peter visually uh, investigated the linen cloths that uh, Joseph of Arimathea and that, that uh, Nicodemus had wrapped Jesus' body with. The linen cloths are lying there, but they're not lying there as if somebody's been unwrapped and then the wrapping's put back down uh, into a pile. The linen, uh, the linen cloths are represented as how they would collapse if a body had suddenly disappeared from, uh, and been resurrected from uh, the middle of, of those wrappings. And so uh, nothing about this matched Mary's idea of Jesus' body being stolen. Uh, these circumstances uh, only matched a resurrection. If they were going to steal Jesus' body, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, nobody would have unwrapped him first. Uh, the, and, and nobody could put those wrappings back together. You would just take his body, uh, wrappings and, and all, and, uh, and, and move on out. And so no evidence there of uh, vandalism on anybody's part or haste on anyone's part. Uh, everything points to uh, a resurrection. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, we're told, was not lying with a linen cloth that covered his body, but it was folded together in a place by uh, itself. And so, um, uh, gentlemen, we should pick up after ourselves at home. If Jesus' first act following his resurrection was to neatly fold the headcloth, then we ought to be uh, tongue-in-cheek related uh, to that. But it does speak to 
Um, I don't hear so much about it uh, anymore, but they did have the Shroud of Turin that was being tested and everybody was, you know, making a big to-do about that. But what is described here uh, in, in terms of this description of Jesus' resurrection, it does not match what uh, that, that Shroud of Turin probably used in the, the wrapping of somebody else, maybe even somebody else crucified, uh, but not uh, Jesus. John then... The other disciple who came to the tomb first, he then went into the tomb and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not know the Scripture that he must rise again uh, from the dead. And so he saw uh, and believed concerning the resurrection and uh, the context of his believing is believing in the resurrection here. Saw the linen cloths not as a kind of a pile of unwrapped wrappings but still in the shape of the body, the body gone. And the word saw there, we get our I word idea from it. And it was like John all of a sudden says, I get it. He comprehended uh, the, uh, the resurrection and that this is what happened and he was the first man to understand uh, and to believe. Both uh, uh, the disciples, Peter and John, then went their way again to their own homes. Apparently, uh, not informing Mary Magdalene uh, of, of any uh, of this. And so Mary, we're told she stood outside uh, by the tomb uh, weeping after they uh, had left and uh, she uh, wept and stooped down and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet of where Jesus' body had lain and then they said to her woman why are you weeping and she said to them because they uh, have taken uh, away my Lord. I mean, even his death, even without a resurrection, she says, he's my Lord. That's her commitment to him because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid, uh, uh, laid him. And so uh, she apparently follows the, the two back to the tomb and uh, remained behind after they left. She's left alone there now. She's weeping. The word used for her weeping there is it literally means to wail. She is inconsolable uh, at this, um, wanting to uh, now, as she comes to the tomb, somehow uh, this they has stolen the body, has denied her uh, even the, the, the privilege or the ability uh, to see his dead body uh, uh, once again. And that's the scene of, uh, that, that she is in in the depth of, of her condition. And the Lord wants her, uh, us to know that. And so she looks in. There's two angels inside. They're sitting. They're the picture, absolutely picture uh, of, of peace as they sit on uh, either end of, of that uh, place where Jesus' body had been uh, laying. They questioned Mary in terms of her tears, and they said, woman, why are you weeping? And uh, their perspective, of course, is greater than hers. She thinks the body's been stolen. They know that uh, he has been uh, resurrected, and so they don't see any, any cause for tears at all related to what the tomb reveals, and yet here she is 
uh, weeping, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and if Mary had seen uh, the seal broken on the tomb and, and Jesus' body uh, lying cold and dead after three days in that tomb, that would have been a cause for weeping, and, uh, but not his body gone and resurrected as he said he, he would be. And so these circumstances that she thinks are so terrible are, are not terrible uh, at, at all. And so she's convinced the body uh, has been uh, stolen. She's, com- she's so focused on finding Jesus' body that's been taken uh, that she almost dismisses uh, the angels. And so when she had said this to them, she turned around. So, I mean, she is really wrapped up in the Lord. Uh, she just turns around from the angels and uh, goes outside of the tomb. And she saw Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. So it's still dark early in the morning. Um, she is weeping heavily. Maybe there's uh, supernatural reasons for why she didn't recognize him uh, at that moment. And uh, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you uh, seeking? And he knew the answer, but he wanted to hear, uh, have her say it. And uh, she supposed him uh, to be the gardener and said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She assumed that the only person that would be there that early in the morning at the site of that tomb would be uh, a gardener. And, uh, and so uh, she, she asked if he knows anything about where the body uh, had been taken. And if he would just show her, tell her where the body had been taken, uh, she, would, she would take it from there. If she got the body, she would deal with now uh, trying to carry uh, uh, a, a, a dead body of a, gr- a grown man by herself and into a, 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 a better place. And so uh, that's her, her love for the Lord on full display. And then Jesus' response to her was, don't you know that once a body dies and it's too heavy, you're too small, you could never care. He doesn't get into a rational decision, a discussion with her at all. He just says to her, Mary. And he says it in a way that she recognizes from three and a half years of his public ministry, that it's him talking to her. And then uh, he speaks that uh, to her, revealing himself to be resurrected and to be himself in that word. And then she turned and said to him, uh, Rabboni, which is to say uh, teacher, it's Aramaic for rabbi, or for teacher. And so she immediately responds, recognizes Jesus for who he is, and calls him rabbi or teacher. I wish I could get that Mary and Rabboni on tape. So if you ever see it on Craigslist or on uh, eBay, it would be something to hear um, the inflection, to hear the emotion somehow uh, all of it very, very familiar uh, to, to them. And she uh, immediately uh, uh, kind of melts into worship of him and uh, submission to, to him at, at the sound of his, uh, his voice. And uh, you can imagine as, as she starts to cling to him, as Jesus is going to reference here in verse 17, probably falling at his feet and clinging to his feet. Remember, um, she had 
no thought of ever seeing him alive again. She came to see a dead body. Now, talk about God doing exceeding abundantly above all we could ever ask or think. Now she not only doesn't see his dead body, but have that much. Now she sees him resurrected and alive. And imagine, I mean, all of us, I trust we have relationships in our life that if they were to die, we would give everything we owned to have one more chance to have a conversation with them, to talk with them, to hold them one more time. I mean, the emotion of the scene. It's so great. I was watching the, uh, one newscast is talking about all of this AI stuff that, that's going on. I don't understand anything about it, but I've seen enough science fiction movies to know how to handle that when it gets out of hand. But I've got to get like some laser weapons and things like that. But anyway, so it's way, way out of my depth at all. I've got to buy a book or something and and uh, read up on what the, what the thread is related to it. But now they have a, a, a company that will, uh, when a spouse or a loved one is about to die, and um, that they will then film this person prior to their, their death, they will record a significant amount of conversation so that they can then produce a living kind of image on a screen of the person uh, able now to engage in a conversation with you. That's a little creepy. But I, I, I pulled out a checkbook and we, Karen and I did it for Chip and Lily and uh, so our little dogs, so that if anything happens to them, we can say at 7.30, let's go see Chip and Lily in the living room. But I mean, the, the, but you see how eager people are just for this produced thing to somehow even approach one more moment with this person uh, that I love. And then here he, uh, here he is. And so she begins to uh, hug him and to cling to him and uh, in the way that we would cling to the person that we love the most in life and similar circumstances. And Jesus said, do not cling to me. Uh, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your uh, God. And so uh, it's not easy to understand when Jesus says, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Uh, most often we would look at that and say, well, somehow Jesus felt that being touched by someone now in his glorified condition that it would defile him for his entrance into heaven. But that can't be the case because following his resurrection, he's going to be uh, interacting with the disciples and others for 40 days. Later in the same chapter, he is going to invite uh, Thomas to touch the wounds on his body. So it can't be something uh, like that. Uh, more probable here when, uh, when he says, uh, don't cling to me, the idea is, uh, I'm not going to disappear on you immediately. 
I am going to ascend into heaven, but there's going to be 40 days between my resurrection and my ascension. This won't be the last time you'll see me or have access uh, to me. That seems to better match uh, the the scene that is uh, is going uh, uh, on here. And so, not only will I be resurrected, but I will, following my resurrection, I will ascend uh, once again back into uh, heaven, and she then sends him forth, a woman uh, with, uh, it was the first one in human history to take the message of Jesus' resurrection uh, to uh, the rest of the world. Some very cynical commentators say that it's because there's no better way to get news out um, between the two sexes. I mean, he could have said it to two guys and and they go off fishing and nobody would ever find out. But I I don't believe that at all, and I want you to know that. But what it is interesting, though, is in Judaism at that time, a woman's testimony in a court of law was nothing. Was nothing. She could not be brought as an eyewitness to any truth. That's how lowly esteemed she was in the culture. And here Jesus gives the message of his resurrection, the most important uh, news that the human history has ever heard, and he entrusts it here to a woman. And you look all around the world today, wherever Christianity, wherever there is a Christian heritage in that part of the world, you look at how women are esteemed and how they are treated as opposed to other parts of the world. Jesus always elevates women and the role of women. And here's another, uh, another place in which he esteems uh, uh, them publicly in, in, in such a significant way. It's interesting for me, here I am, I'm a grown man, United States of America. I've been around in the United States of America for a lot of years. And I lived in the United States of America where uh, women were very well treated by and large by the culture. We were raised to respect uh, uh, women. Now you hold the door and you don't know whether she's going to punch you. (laughs) You've done, I mean, we're all living in our heads wondering what can we do or what can we not do anymore. And, and, um, but, uh, the way that women uh, were esteemed in that in that uh, in that kind of of a way, and uh, and and how how they were uh, viewed, and then here and women have been as uh, much a part of it as as any men. And then you you look at this idea that Christianity is this shackler of women, and we've got to be done with Christianity and God and all of these things. Look at, as that has progressed within our culture, look at the portion of women in this culture living in a greater fear for their safety, having to uh, self-limit themselves in a way that has never existed in my lifetime from going to these places or those places at these times and and. Uh, and as if Christianity was go- uh, the, uh, throwing all of that off was going to make things better for women. And the reason that it troubles me is it shames me as a man. 
It shames me as a man in this culture that I live in a culture where women have to have so many weapons or so many pepper gases or sprays or so many locks on their door, so much thing that has to go into their thinking, thinking every time they pull into their driveway, is there anybody else on the street? All of this kind of thing. And the portion of women has become uh, de-elevated as Christianity has ebbed within the culture. No, God always, He always elevates everyone. And he's certainly done that, and the whole world is a witness to it. He has certainly done that related to women, and I, for one, am uh, very, very glad for that. That's exactly uh, how it should be. And then at that same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, uh, there and the and the the thing the focus now moves from Mary Magdalene now to uh, the eleven uh, disciples or apostles. And that evening of the resurrection, uh, in the e- uh, that evening, she we move from the morning to the evening there in an upper room somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, uh, when the doors were shut. Uh, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. So the the disciples, recognizing that if the Jewish religious establishment has been so bold in crucifying Jesus without justification, then we as his disciples have got to be the next people on the menu. And so they are hiding in this room. You notice the doors are shut, that is, they're locked. And there are multiple doors, probably a door that opens up from the outside into the building and then another locked door uh, to uh, uh, the inner room that they are even within the building. And there they are, uh, they're, they're shut off. The, that entire day uh, has been a, a, a flurry of activity in that room that they're in. Uh, Mary comes, as we've seen, she brings the report uh, of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Peter is then, uh, Jesus meets with Peter individually and, and uh, gets things right with him. Peter comes back with the report. The two men on the road to Emmaus come back to the room. He's resurrected, 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 resurrected. And yet there is no excitement concerning his resurrection in the room concerning the disciples, only fear. That, that's, that, that's the emotion that, that dominates the room. And Jesus comes into the room. He stood in the midst and he said to them, peace be with you. He said, uh, shalom uh, to them and, and pronounced peace upon them and revealing his resurrection to all of them. And so here he, he reveals some of the new qualities of his resurrection body and, uh, and, uh, and perhaps qualities of our, our uh, resurrection body that will have one day the ability uh, to eat, the ability for his body to be something that could be touched, material, substantial, and yet he could move through solid walls and then simply appear within the room exactly as he does here. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side as evidence of that it was him that had, and he had been crucified. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace to you. I mean, they're so terrified they need to hear shalom more than once. As the Father has sent me, I also, 
send uh, you. And so uh, Jesus speaks to them and, uh, uh, about how now he's going to send them out as his representatives, just as the Father had sent Jesus into the world as, as his representative. And uh, uh, Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel record that they were sent out uh, to preach the gospel, to teach, and then also to do uh, great miracles. And so uh, here he uh, commissions them uh, in this way. And then uh, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So quite a scene, really beautiful. He breathes on them and they're born again. Holy Spirit comes into their life. Starts right there in that room. And um, the, Jesus now, a, a spiritual birth able to take place because now His death, burial, and resurrection has occurred. And so this is comparable to us being born again, receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, no one can be a Christian except we've received the Holy Spirit into our life, been born again by the Holy Spirit. They experience that experience right there in that upper room. Later when we get into the book of Acts, we'll see uh, there's another dynamic in relationship to the Holy Spirit that would be revealed to them. And then he commissioned them further, if you forgive the sins uh, of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, uh, they are uh, retained. And so that's the message that the disciples were to take into the world, a message of forgiveness to the world, that there's the forgiveness of sins that's found in Jesus. Talking about the privileges that are ours as Christians to be able to meet uh, people in uh, their deepest need in life and to communicate to them that there is hope in Christ uh, there isn't a single person in the world uh, that we come into contact with no matter how, or ourselves, no matter how great the sin we've been exposed to, great the sin that we have committed, that we cannot then speak to them about the fullness of the forgiveness that is found in Christ. What an amazing uh, message. And so here in terms of preaching the gospel, Jesus makes the lead issue the pronouncing of the forgiveness of sins because sins need to be forgiven. So there is, the, there is the upside of the fact that no one is so bad that they can't be saved and forgiven, but the other side is no one is so good that they don't need to be saved and to be forgiven. In other words, Jesus doesn't just say, um, uh, it, 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 Jesus he says, don't ignore the sin issue. Don't ignore the sin issue. Don't ignore the glory related to the sin issue of having sins forgiven by putting my faith in Jesus Christ. But then don't ignore the consequences either of rejecting the gospel and remaining in my sins and the eternal consequences uh, of, of that. And so uh, this isn't as, you know, some religious establishments would have where some kind of a religious hierarchy uh, can come along and say, I forgive you, I forgive you, I don't forgive you. That's not what's going on. As Jesus' representatives for all of us were able to go to a person and say, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be forgiven. If you don't, you remain in your sins. 
We have the authority to take that message to, uh, uh, to, uh, to people. And then uh, Thomas, who is called the twin, one of the twelve, uh, he was not with uh, the others, uh, the other ten, when, he, uh, when Jesus appeared to them in that uh, upper room. And so we don't know why he wasn't there. Um, by the way, this is the first Sunday evening service in church history. Never miss a Sunday evening service. But that I'm, I'm preaching to the choir now, aren't I? Teach this next Sunday morning, I'll tell you. And, and so he's not there. Some people will criticize him. Why in the world was in, the, you know, the, in there and you know, the assembling together of the saints and the different things? And there is something to be said for that. But um, uh, the disciples never condemn him for not being there. Jesus, when he appears to, uh, to Thomas a week after the events, he never condemns Thomas for not having been present. I'm inclined to believe that everybody grieves the loss of a loved one in a different way. And there are some people, and maybe the majority of people, who want to be around other people to process that loss. And then there are other people who just want to be alone and work this out themselves. And so uh, I, I don't doubt that maybe something like that is in play. We certainly don't want to find fault with him uh, at all. And so uh, he comes back into the room, apparently right after Jesus being with them. And the other disciples said, we have seen the Lord. He's risen. And so he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of, his, of the nails and put my finger, into the, uh, it, 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 my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not uh, believe. So he, he gives conditions for his faith. Uh, in Jesus Christ. I will not believe this. Now, he is known as Doubting Thomas for this very uh, reason. And, uh, but uh, one, of the things, one of the things that's kind of how God can work something together for good out of this is that Thomas was a skeptic. We see it continually in the Gospels. He was not a credulous person. He wanted proof before he would believe something. And, uh, and so, uh, and the fact that he comes to faith in Christ is an evidence that, uh, that uh, again, it's not because he's, he's credulous in any way. And so, then, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. So, uh, Jesus waits uh, eight days. Why did he wait eight days? I don't know. Um, but... Thomas had to listen for eight days to these other guys talking excitedly about the fact of Jesus' resurrection. And, and, and Thomas remains in his unbelief, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut as before. He stood in the midst, and he said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Uh, he had heard the conversation uh, eight days earlier. 
Uh, go ahead, you said, unless you can put your finger here and look at my hands, reach your hand here, put it into my side, into the wound. Do not be unbelieving, uh, but believing. And it's really uh, humbling, I think, and I think it's humbling for Jesus. Uh, here you have uh, a disciple who has been with Jesus for three and a half years, seen all the miracles, seen all of the things, heard all of the teaching, and then he makes Jesus prove himself in this way. Not by uh, the second-hand report uh, of the others, no matter how uh, uh, true those, those reports might be. No, I want, I want my faith to be based on something uh, other than uh, the Scriptures and, and other than the, these eyewitness uh, accounts. And so he makes the offer uh, to uh, to Thomas there, there's no indication in the passage that Thomas then did that. He immediately is undone at his demand and undone at the presence of uh, the resurrected Jesus in, in that scene. And Thomas's response here was, as he said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And, and he, he speaks believing here to him. He declares Jesus to be his Lord, his master in his life. He affirms the deity uh, of Jesus Christ. Now the Jehovah Witnesses teach that Jesus is not divine. They teach that he is an archangel on a par with uh, Lucifer. And, uh, and, and, and so that's their teaching related to him. But if Jesus was merely an angel, he would never receive this worship from Thomas in this way. Continually we see in the book of, of Revelation especially, but other places as well, when men uh, undone by the majesty of the presence of an angel, they then tried to worship the angel. The angel said, no, don't you do that. You can get in trouble around here for doing that kind of stuff. That goes way back uh, before the Garden of Eden. I'm just a creation like you. Worship God. Don't be worshiping uh, me here. And, and yet, Jesus doesn't do any of that. He receives the worship because He is Lord and He is God. And Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me and have believed, uh, blessed are those who have, uh, you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have uh, believed. Those who put their trust in me, not because they demand some specific miracle or appearance of me as you have demanded here, but on the basis again of the prophetic scriptures, uh, the basis of changed life, the, uh, the, the, the basis of these, these eyewitnesses. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written uh, in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so the Gospel of John is written with the intent that a person would come to put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They could have, we could be, all of us could have a Bible that is so big if they recorded every miracle that Jesus did that we all needed a forklift to get our Bible uh, in here. But it's very streamlined. 
John builds his uh, case for faith in Jesus as the Messiah based upon seven miracles of the Holy Spirit's choosing and the seven I am statements uh, of Jesus. And that's enough to come to faith uh, in, in Him. And so that's the purpose of, uh, of the book. And I trust that uh, all of us here tonight have allowed the purpose of this gospel to be accomplished within our life and we've been born again and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. If you have not done that yet, uh, we're going to be up in front immediately after the service and we'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to be able to leave this place tonight and to be able to say like Thomas to Jesus, my Lord and my God, which is an awesome privilege, but it, it occurs by virtue of a spiritual birth. And so we would love to pray with you so that the full purpose of this gospel wouldn't be just a book that we know now, but a book that has actually accomplished the purpose for which it was written in our lives. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer.